What's going on everybody? I am back from a week's vacation, so of course I am recharged, refocused, and ready to go. I'm Armand Lee, so naturally this is the Quarterly Report. Thank you all for listening to me this week. We've got an amazing show. My guy Jay Michael is stopping by. He's going to break down all things NBA. Plus, we're going to talk about some of the biggest fights that have already happened in the month of December. Also, Sam Presti has gotten so much praise over the years for all of the decisions he has made correctly. However, it is time for him to be criticized for all of the mistakes he has made as well. I will fill you in a little bit later. All that and so much more. But first, our number one story this week. First quarter. What the hell is going on in the NFL? There's so much stuff about football this year that I literally just have to, you know, just toss my hands up. And, like, I just don't get it. I don't understand. First things first, the Jacksonville-Seattle game, slim. <laughs> when are people going to learn not to throw things at professional athletes? You know, because what we are, we had a few weeks ago, there was, like, the anniversary of the Malice at the Palace. You would have thought. You would have thought after that, people would have learned their lesson. Like, okay, Slim, this ain't the move. Like throwing beer at athletes, people who are much larger than the average human being, people who are much faster than the average human human being, and people who have much more aggression than the average human being. This probably isn't the best idea, right? I mean, oftentimes, I remember... Last year, I don't know if you guys remember this, but the first game of the last season, last year in the NBA, you know, the Thunder, they were playing in Philadelphia, and this old guy flipped off Russell Westbrook. Like, he gave him the bird. And I remember Jeff Van Gundy was calling the game on ESPN, and he was like, you know what? Athletes, he was saying this in jest, but he was saying, you know, athletes should be allowed to, when someone disrespects them, they should be allowed to go into the stands. And, you know, he walked that back rather rather quickly. But I'm serious. If you throw alcohol on somebody, Slim, <laughs> you deserve to get your ass kicked. You know, this is something that I've thought about for a while, right? You know, I'm, I'll be 35 next week. You know, last week I was out of town for my birthday. So an early birthday celebration. I, I turned 35 next Tuesday. So I, I feel like I'm in the last generation of people who actually fought, like scrapped. You know, because like kids nowadays, they don't fight. They pull out the hammer or whatever. They don't fight anymore. And I feel like it's it's been a disservice to our society. You know, I've, I had my fair share of fights. Like, if you're around your, your mid-30s and older, you grew up, you got in fights. You know, it wasn't anything crazy. You know, I wasn't a troublemaker. I got my average share of fights. And, I, you know, I won more than I lost. Don't get it twisted. But I didn't win all of them. And that's part of what shaped, shaped me into being like a, an, a normal well-adjusted human being. I'm being serious. Like, I know I grew up, if I violated, there was a consequence, not just from my parents, but from my peers. You know, so I'm not socially awkward. I don't step out of bounds. I don't step out of line. I would never throw alcohol at an athlete. Forget an athlete. I wouldn't throw alcohol on a human being. Like, why would I, why would anyone do that? Right, that's just normal decency. But even beyond that, Right. I was raised a certain way to know that you wouldn't do anything like that. It's just not decent. 
But even then I was taught if you violate someone, there's a consequence. You may get punched in the mouth. You feel me? It's like a social kind of uh, recalibration. Like it's a social, a societal way to keep people in line. If you violate, you get you get hit. <laughs> and I think it, it, it helps us as a people. But nowadays, people don't scrap because it's too dangerous now. And you got people like this who have gone through life. The guy who threw the bottle at Ron Artest in Detroit back in the day, just like the guy who threw a beer at uh, this player for the Seattle Seahawks, his name escapes me. These are people who have been long. They have been longing. They have been needing an ass kicking for a long time. They just haven't, haven't gotten it yet. So, honestly, there needs to be some new, and I'm not going to stay too long on this, but I honestly feel this way, Joe. Like, the next time someone throws beer or something at an athlete, they need to put 60 seconds on the clock. And once that athlete is in the stands, you, you allow the athlete to get in the stands. In this case, the guy had to climb up. Let him climb up in there. And the fan has 60 seconds to either fight or run or do whatever. But the athlete has 60 seconds to do whatever he needs to do to that fan. And we will weed this mess out real quick. I'm being dead ass serious. Because, number one, and you know, I'll get to the specifics of this later. But number one, if you got 60 seconds with an athlete who you have instigated and like, you know, got them feeling some type of way, your whole, the whole way you view whatever it is that you're thinking, it changes real quick. And again, like the normal human can't outrun an athlete. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. The normal human, the normal human who will throw alcohol at an athlete can't fight, you know? And he probably can't run. These guys are all out of shape. So what are they going to do? They'll run for maybe 20 seconds of the 60. And then for 40 seconds, you're getting your ass beat. You just got to cover up. I guarantee you that person isn't going to be throwing liquor at an athlete anymore. And this is also what I would do, right? As I stand on my soapbox, talking about how I would change the world, how I would change society for the better. If you are caught throwing anything an object at an athlete you waive your white your rights to sue so that athlete could do whatever the hell he wants to do with you without fear of paying you because people got to get this i remember in the malice of the palace jermaine o'neal was ready to i mean he was ready to end this guy's life but he slid on the floor because there was so much beer on the floor but he wound up and was about to land a haymaker on this guy but he slipped and he couldn't connect all the way. Had he connected, that guy, man, he wouldn't know, he wouldn't know the days of the week anymore. It would have been over. His quality of life would have been drastically changed. Because you looked at him, he, you know, he you could tell that guy had never been in a fight. Jermaine O'Neal was about to end that dude. And part of me is like, you know what? He should have been made an example. What are people doing throwing throwing? Objects, liquor at people. You wouldn't throw, hopefully, an object at anyone else doing their job. But for whatever reason, you people get it in their in their heads that it's okay to do this to athletes. Like the most football players. 
the most physical athletes in the world, the most physical people. Football players, they they not they not like us. They not like everybody else. This guy was about to jump up and climb into the stands. What do you think he would have done? You understand what I'm saying? I don't I don't know what people are thinking. I don't know what's going on in the world. But I saw this on Sunday and I was like, yo. What is going on in the NFL? Just the whole experience, the NFL experience. And that was just the tip of the iceberg because that's something I don't know when it comes to just people. You know, that's a that's a, a person making a decision that makes no, no sense to me on any level. But when you start breaking down the game, how in the hell are the Jacksonville Jaguars 9-4? and four? When did that happen? <laughs> Now, mind you, I, I haven't watched football the way I, I used to watch football three years, five years, ten years ago. You know what I mean? It just, it's been a slow burn. You know, it, it's just not this, I don't have the same love that I used to have. And maybe some of you feel that way as well. But, you know, I just I kind of went a bit going on. You know, all I heard about Jacksonville was that Blake Bortles trash. The defense is pretty good, but, you know. They're in the AFC South and yada, yada, yada. They're not that good of a team. And then I look up, they beat Seattle, and they're 9-4. and four, And I'm like, what? When did that happen? Then I look at the Tennessee Titans, and all I've heard this year was that Marcus Mariota is not very good. And he may not be. I'm not – just because your team is winning does not mean that your quarterback is excellent. But they're 8-5. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll look at those two teams – and I, I, I go back to something that I talked about at the beginning of the year. Everyone chases this superstar quarterback. But those are two teams right now without any elite-level quarterback play. And they are having amazing seasons. So there's more than one way to skin a cat. You don't need to pay a quarterback X amount of millions of dollars. You don't need to draft a quarterback in the first round every other year just chasing this guy. You can build your team and then find a quarterback. You know what I'm saying? You don't, you, everybody's not going to get Tom Brady. So there's no point of always paying guys as if they're Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers. There's more than one way to skin a cat. But it's not just in the AFC South, right? I'm looking at the Chiefs, and I remember a few weeks ago, everybody's like, the Chiefs are the talk of the town. And now the Chiefs are only, what, one game ahead of the Chargers? What's going on? What's going on there? Seattle, every week, every time I look at them, they're losing another tough loss. And they're a game out of the Rams. This just makes no sense to me. I don't know. This NFL season has been so wild. But the one constant has been the New England Patriots. Oh, I'm sorry. They just lost to the Dolphins. What the hell is going on with football? We got fans going crazy. The play on the field is crazy. Nick Foles is somehow back starting in Philadelphia again. What the hell is going on? Hopefully, you know, this this leads us to an amazing and a, an exciting playoffs. But ultimately, I think we all kind of understand what's coming up. If Aaron Rodgers plays, if he's healthy enough down the stretch, Green Bay will get in the playoffs as a wild card. And with Wentz being out, there's really no dominant team in the NFC. At this point, how confident are you that there will be a New England Green Bay Super Bowl? Like, seriously. What is your confidence level of that right now? 
All this is all based on Aaron Rodgers coming back. Because if Aaron Rodgers comes back with the Eagles being the way things are now, hey, if you're in Wisconsin, you need to be feeling pretty good about things. And if you're in Boston, I hate you because you still have Tom Brady and you have won enough. All right, guys, man, that's the first quarter. Again, I was gone for a week. I had two weeks to kind of think about this, and I was just like, I had all these other ideas that I wanted to do, and then this past Sunday happened, and I'm like, man, what the hell is going on in the NFL? The Jacksonville Jaguars are 9-4. and four. If that's not a sign of the apocalypse, man, I don't know what is. All right, guys, we're going to keep things moving. We're going to go from the gridiron to the boxing ring. It's our second topic this week. Second quarter. As you all know, I love boxing. Boxing is my second favorite sport. And this past weekend, one of the biggest fights, at least on paper, happened on ESPN. Vasily Lomachenko was taking on Guillermo Rigondeaux, or Rigondeaux, however you want to pronounce it. Uh, Rigondeaux was calling out Lomachenko for years now, saying how Lomachenko was ducking him and didn't want to fight him. Rigondeaux was undefeated, one of the best pound-for-pound fighters in the world. So naturally, the fight completely underwhelmed. Lomachenko dominated Rigondeaux to the point where Rigo didn't even come out. Again, undefeated, called out Lomachenko, you know, made a big deal out of it, one of the best fighters in the world, stayed in this corner, did not want to continue the fight. And I can't tell you, man, that it was so disappointing, so disappointing, because I really thought that this fight was going to be special because styles make fights. It's an old cliche. But as you saw, but Sally Lomachenko is extremely aggressive, amazing footwork, and is a, a, uh, a fighter that always comes forward and is always busy, whereas Rigondeau is a counterpuncher, extremely defensive fighter, smart technician. So, you know, it was a battle like who's going to budge first? And it was clear after the first round that there was going to be no budging on Lomachenko's part. He, but the, the thing I want to talk about this fight the most and I'll probably do a pound-for-pound pound in an upcoming show, probably toward the end of the year, because um, I'm not going to do it right now. But one of the things that struck me most about this fight was the way it ended. Obviously, Rigano didn't want to come out, and it, it was almost perfect synergy compared to the fight that happened right after that on HBO between Warrior, and if you're not a big-time boxing fan, you probably didn't see it, uh, which is unfortunate because that was an exciting fight. It was between Orlando Salido. If you know boxing, you know he's a super entertaining fighter. He always puts on the show, super aggressive. He's won fight of the year several times in the past. Versus Miguel Roman. Uh, I don't want to say an up-and-coming fighter, but a fighter who's been down on his luck. Uh, he said after the fight, had he lost, he would have retired. Um, kind of hard to take fighters' word. Take, the, uh, take a fighter's word for uh, their future of their career right after the fight because, you know, there's so much emotion going on. But that fight had all the fireworks that one would expect. It was an extremely entertaining fight. But Salido, uh, he was knocked down two times prior. And, you know, I want to say in the eighth round, maybe the ninth round, he was getting beat. And, you know, he took a knee. The ref stopped the fight. And... 
he didn't quit, but you know, he, you could tell he just didn't have any more fight in him. But in those situations, I understand because Salido, not just his history, but in that specific fight on Saturday, he gave it his all. He went toe to toe. He, in the first round, you thought he was going to win. You know, he went to the toolbox, tried to work things out. He, he stayed in the pocket and they were throwing, I mean, vicious shots, body punches, head shots. And when, you know, when you're, when you're fighting, you just don't have an infinite amount of, you know, ability. I mean, stamina to just take these shots, to take bone rattling shots. At some point, your body's got to, your body's going to give. And when a fighter takes a knee or when he quits, if you want to say that, in situations like that, you understand it. You don't, you don't begrudge a fighter for that. Because look, man, every time these guys step in the ring, not just in a fight, but when they spar, when they practice, they're leaving some of themselves in that squared circle. They're doing jobs. Like, there's no way in the world I'd be a professional fighter. No way in the world. So I would never ridicule a fighter for quitting when they're taking damage, man. Self-preservation is the first law of nature. And Salido has been in wars. Max Kellerman said it best. It's like every time he gets in the ring, it's a war. It makes you just like scrunch up and make a grimace, you know, make a, make a face. It's like, man, it's, it's just painful. But you, you compare that to Rigondeaux and I got to be honest, man, that bothered me because not only did you call out Lomachenko, Lomachenko, I really don't, I mean, look, Bugandia is one of the best fighters in the world, but he's not box office. He doesn't have an exciting brand of fighting and he moved up two weight classes. So it's not like Lomachenko needed to fight Rigo. There was, there was nothing there for him, right? But he took on the fight because Rigo kept on calling him out. Like Again, over a year, talking mess. How Lomachenko's ducking him. So if you're going to do all of that, man, at least go for it. I'll never be, again, I won't begrudge a fighter for getting knocked out. I won't begrudge a fighter for stopping if they're getting beat. But on Saturday, it wasn't that. I mean, Lomachenko was clearly the better fighter. But it wasn't like he was landing clean, flush shots on Rigo. Rigo quit. Rigo mentally quit because he knew he didn't have anything for Lomachenko. And to me, oh, that's unforgivable. Don't go out of your way to call somebody out when they're not even thinking about you. Don't go out of your way to talk all this mess. Rigando talks mess about Leo Santa Cruz. Like, Rigando chirps on everybody. And it didn't bother me because you know what? When he's fighting before Saturday... He was that guy. Rigondeaux fights. If you haven't seen them fight before, it's it was it's really amazing because usually he's such a good defensive fighter. He's such an amazing counterpuncher. His opponents will not throw punches, even though they know they are losing. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, he had the stigma of being a boring fighter. Because he's all about getting points. And He's such an amazing counterpuncher. His opponents won't punch. So once Rigondeaux gets up, he'll just, he'll stalk you, but he won't throw crazy punches. And the fights become very boring, boring because even though his opponents know they're losing, they still won't let their hands go. Well, Lomachenko didn't have that problem. 
Lomachenko was going from the bell. And Regardiel had nothing for him. Nothing. And then you're going to quit? Again, it'd be different if Lomachenko was punishing you, landing tough punches, hitting you with all types of crazy, you know, combinations. He, he, I mean, he, he, he did hit him. I'm not going to make it seem like Lomachenko wasn't touching him. But it wasn't anything where it was like, oh, my gosh, he's getting destroyed out there. No. He didn't hit him with that many clean shots. What happened to Rigondeaux was like, yo, he came to the realization that he had nothing for Lomachenko. He didn't try to go into the bag of tricks to see what else he could pull out. He didn't try to up the ante or being aggressive. Once he got a point duck, uh, taken away for continually holding Lomachenko, he, he was done. He gave up. And, man, that's that to me, that was shocking. And I don't know why it was shocking because Lomachenko has made another at the time, elite fighter quit. He makes fighters quit, which is, you know, they don't, that it doesn't come along that often. Because Lomachenko, he's a great fighter, but it's not like he has, you know, world class punching power. He doesn't put a lot of guys, I mean, he has, but he doesn't have like knockout power to where you're like, man, he's got one punch, puts you to sleep power. He's just so busy and so active. And he applies so much pressure that you just can't take a break. And I understand how that can be just overwhelming. But then again, I'm not calling Lomachenko out to fight me. You understand? I'm not going out of my way to make myself an agitator to get a fight with this guy. Guillermo Rigondeaux did. So you get no sympathy for me, bro. It was already bad enough that you weren't an entertaining fighter, but people were impressed by your skill, your craft. Now, I don't know what you do to get back in the good graces to get another big time fight because you quit on your seat, man. Without getting a busted nose, without getting a bloody lip, a swollen eye, a black eye. You didn't get hit nothing close to anything like that but you were ready to give up. It's crazy how that works in certain sports, man. Unless you're on some Roberto Duran and you're going to, and you're going to just change completely and give the fighter public what they want, which I seriously doubt from Rigondeaux's perspective, this may be it for him. And he's had a great career. I mean, he practically ended Nonito Donaire's career. But this is the way he may go out on ESPN on one of the biggest fights. One of the biggest fights of the year. People were anticipating this matchup and it didn't live up to the hype. Not because of Lomachenko. Lomachenko carried his end of the bargain. But the guy who wanted the fight couldn't get off his own stool because he quit. I'll never quit on you guys, but we're going to take a little bit of a break. Halftime is on the way. You heard the horn. But before we get to halftime, make sure you get in contact. You interact with yours truly on all different platforms and social media. We are out there for everybody. If you like the show, you want to get involved, please do so. You can email me your thoughts, your critiques. If you got a question for me, email me. We are at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. Again, that's quarterly 
Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E, report at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us. We're at Quarterly Show on Twitter, at Quarterly, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E, show. And, of course, subscribe and rate and review the show on iTunes. All you got to do is go to the iTunes podcast directory, search Quarterly Report. Again, it's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E, report. Click on the icon, subscribe, and while you're at it, rate and review the show. Let the world know. Let your friends know. Let me know what you like, what you don't like about the show. And tell your friends, man, we're episode 35. We're still growing. I appreciate all of you listeners from day one. And if this is your first time listening, I appreciate you too for spending an hour with yours truly to talk about all the crazy things that's going on in the world of sports and entertainment. All right, guys. It's halftime, so I decided with the year coming to an end, it's time to make one last trip to the call center. That's right. It's the Quarterly Report Hotline Bling. Let's check it out. Yo, what's up, everybody? This is the final call center of 2017. This year, we've given out a lot of advice to some of the biggest names in sports, entertainment, and everything in between. So we're going to go out with the bang with our first caller this week. Caller, what's your name and what's your problem? It's your boy, Ho. Anyway, long time listener, first time caller. Thanks for having me on, Armand. It's The Rock. Anyway, got a bit of a problem. Now, my album, 444, just got nominated for a Grammy for Album of the Year. Now, that doesn't really sound like much of a problem. But you got to dig a little deeper. As you may or may not know, the album talks about some of my infidelity when it comes to my wife, Beyonce. Now, last year, her album, Lemonade, was nominated for Album of the Year 2 and, controversially, didn't win. Now, I'm in a really tough position because if my album wins and hers didn't, I'm going to catch hell from a lot of people, including... The old ball and chain. So, what should your boy, Young Ho, do? Well, I'll be down. Jay-Z listens to the show. Damn, bro. Hook a brother up, man. Don't treat me like sauce money. Give me a plug or something. Damn. Anyway, yeah, Joe, you stepped in it with this one. Because there's literally no win. There's no way you can win this joint, bro. If you win the award... All of those hurt feelings, they're going to start, they, of course, they're going to start festering inside of your wife. Because not only are you being rewarded for your cheating ways, but she didn't. You feel me? Oh, and you know, Beyonce, you know, on the outside, from our perspective, she's super gracious and the whole nine. But I know you're going to catch so much hell if you win. I know you're hoping you don't win, bro. First off, so my advice to you, don't even go. You know, this act like a, you're protesting last year's, you know, snub from your wife. You know, Jada Pinkett did it with Will a few years ago. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So you go ahead, flip the script. Don't bring your ass to the Grammys, Joe, because if you win, oh, man, she going to six salons back on your ass. But I think you may be okay. Even if you do go, you got Kendrick and you got Bruno Mars competing with you. So... I don't think you're going to win, but just in case, 
Stay your ass at home. Netflix and chill, bro, because there's no way you're going to win if you do go to that award show. And if you receive the award, you better bring your wife on stage and just, mm, I love you, baby, mm, the whole nine, Joe, because it's slim. It's going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough 2018 if you started off that way. All right, that's caller number one. Caller number two, what's your name and where you're from? Hey, Armand, this is Bill, the sports guy from Boston. You may know me as Bill Simmons. Anyway, got to be honest, man, I'm not really feeling this trade of Giancarlo standing to the Yankees. I know you don't talk baseball that much, but hear me out. There's something fishy going on. Derek Jeter just takes over the Marlins, and the first thing he does is trade Stanton to the pinstripes. Come on, something smells funny, right? I can't be, I can't be the only one who thinks this. Come on, man. What's going on? Well, to answer your question, and I mean this with all due respect, because I like your stuff and I'd love to work for the ringer. I gotta be honest, man. This, this is like whining on the highest level. You can't act like what Derek Jeter did with Stanton is so much worse than what Kevin McHale did with Kevin Garnett. I'm sure you didn't complain one time when Kevin McHale traded one of the best players of his generation, one of the best players of all time, Kevin Garnett, to your Celtics, right? Maybe you did. If you did complain, show me the tweet, show me the article, whatever the case may be. But if you didn't say anything then, don't say anything now. Because Giancarlo Stanton, he's a slugger. He's really exciting. He's not anywhere close to being what Kevin Garnett is or was in the NBA, right? So if you didn't have a problem with it, when it helps your team, don't say anything when it helps your rival. I, I can't stand that joint, man. That joint, again, with all due respect, that's a little sucker move, bro. Think about it. Forget the championship. The Celtics renaissance, like the Celtics that you're seeing now, would not exist had it not been for Kevin Garnett. Think I'm crazy? All right. Jalen Brown was drafted with the next pick. Jason Tatum drafted with the next pick. Kyrie Irving was brought into Boston in part because you guys have Brooklyn's pick. All of those picks that you got from Brooklyn came by way of trading Kevin Garnett to the Nets. So not only would you not have your championship, you wouldn't have this next, next generation of Celtics, these young core Celtics team that is playing exceptionally well. Kevin Garnett birthed Boston's renaissance. And you didn't complain about it then, so don't say anything about Derek Jeter pulling a Kevin McHale to his former team now. You feel me? Because that looks a little funny in the light. But again, I mean that with all due respect, because if you're listening, Bill, hold me down, give me a job at the ringer. All right, guys, that's the final call center quarterly report hotline bling of 2017. Hopefully you took my advice and hopefully it worked out for you. If it didn't, at least it was a pretty good segment for halftime. I'll catch you guys in 2018. Peace. Boston sports fans are some of the most annoying people on the face of this earth. Like, I, Bill Simmons did tweet something after the uh, Yankees trade for Giancarlo Stanton. And it was along the lines of, oh, Derek Jeter, he's helping out his former team, yada, yada, yada. And I was just thinking, man, the KG trade didn't happen that long ago. Like, what, nine years? You can't have forgotten it this fast. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
you in no world can you act like the Stanton trade is this awful, you know, deceptive hooking up your your homeboy trade and then say nothing about Kevin McHale doing it with Danny Ainge. You know what I'm saying? Like how do that slips your mind is beyond me. You know, again, like I said, man, when smart people do or say dumb things, there's usually an agenda behind it. And I like Bill Simmons. You know what I'm saying? Puts out a lot of really great content, but he's still a Celtic fan, so there's something deep down about him that's just, you know, not pure. And clearly, it reared his ugly head. But again, I'd have no problem working for him. You know, just to make sure, that, like, put that out there. Because, you know, two years, if I'm working with Bill Simmons, I don't want to hear people like, oh, look at Armand going back. He's selling out. You goddamn right. <laughs> All right, y'all. That's halftime. We got two quarters left, man. Two quarters left in the show. And we're going to finish up strong with one of my favorite guests, my guy, Jay Michael. Third quarter. All right. He is an NBA insider who has covered the league and teams for many years. He's also a man who knows a thing or two about boxing, even boxing himself. The one and only Jay Michael. Jay, thank you for returning to the Quarterly Report. Hey, man, hanging in there pretty good. Um, just getting uh, This NBA season is getting better and better, and uh, boxing's kind of gotten me um, a little bit interested again. I've kind of waned in recent years, so uh, things are looking up, actually. Oh, man, you already know. 2017 has been an amazing year for boxing, and we'll get to the sweet science in a second, but I want to start things off on the basketball court. Um, earlier this week, uh, there was a piece by Bleacher Report, you know, naming all these teams who should be trying to trade for DeMarcus Cousins. And I tweeted, I have never, or I can't think of another player in any sport who's more confusing, at least to me, than DeMarcus Cousins. Obviously, he's supremely talented. This is not a knock on the man's talent, his skills. But more so his production. And when I when I criticize DeMarcus Cousins, you know, I'm not talking about the quote-unquote off-the-court stuff because if you're not uh, a beat reporter or you don't cover the team day in, day out with sources, there's no way that um, you can know all this stuff that people allegedly, you know, people just, you know, kind of attack his character without really citing any evidence. Um, so I'm not talking about off-the-court stuff. Uh, and, you know, one of the greatest basketball players I've ever seen in my life was Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was a supreme malcontent. So it's not that. But on the floor, I'm I'm puzzled by, you know, the 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 accolades and all the praise that is heaped upon DeMarcus Cousins despite having clear flaws. Are you like me and question why all these quote unquote experts continue to rave about DeMarcus Cousins? Or do you understand uh why he's such a hot commodity and why so many teams are at least reportedly, willing to offer up so many assets in order to get him. I understand why people are intrigued because everybody's always going to use, you know, most of his career was spent in Sacramento. People are always going to use, well, with Sacramento, and they were bad for him. It was a, a bad match, which it was, and that's, right. that's fair. And I think because of that, because of the Sacramento thing, let's say if DeMarcus had gone through what he had gone through in San Antonio and they had the same success rate as, is Sacramento. Let's say he's with the Spurs, and you know what San, San Antonio's reputation is. Then I don't think anybody would say as much because they would say obviously Demarcus Cousins is the problem. Whereas would it be in Sacramento, he gets the benefit of the doubt from a lot of people. So I think that's why 
you, you hear a lot of that. And now he's in New Orleans, a team that's actually playing much better than I thought it would. Um, yeah. They still don't really have any, you know, the shooting still, you know, when you look at the shooting guards and the efficiency that, you know, I didn't think they would have a good season because I thought they couldn't stretch the floor enough. But, you know, he's actually doing some good things with them. And so I think that's why. But I get I get your point of view because, yeah, I mean, part of the reason why I've always been reticent about DeMarcus Cousins is because of all the things that I knew that happened and went on behind the scenes. Right. Um, just like before it became common knowledge, Gilbert Arenas. Right. Um, not comparing his behavior to Gilbert Arenas, mind you. Um, but – that's why a lot of teams, you know, people say, well, DeMarcus should be, you know, uh, teams should do this and do that when it comes to DeMarcus Cousins. You should give up all of these assets. There's a reason why, uh, you know, you know, all of these other teams, 29 other teams in the NBA, won't push, pull the trigger to do it. Right. So, because they know too. It's <laughs> um, a DeMarcus's credit. We've never heard of him. Getting in, getting arrested, you know, beating up his girlfriend, uh, pulling drive by, hang, you know, we never heard right. of that kind of stuff. So when people say off the court, you got to really, when you think about it, when you talk about Demarcus, he's an intimidating six foot ten Skyland brother, who I think scares the hell out of a lot of people. But he hasn't, to my knowledge, done anything criminal. Right. So, and that's where kind of that's the dividing line. Okay, since he hasn't done that, why are people so afraid? Well. Uh, it's because there's a lot of things, you know. You know, is he a leader? That's a that's a big question mark. Um, right. Can he make Can he make other younger players around him better? Can he teach those guys? Uh, those are, you know. And are you willing? Is he going to be the kind of guy that once you give him twenty five million dollars a year in long term security, is he no longer going to be on his? Well, right now is his best behavior. Will he fall off the cliff? Because you know, some guys get that money and they get that security then their real true colors come out. And I think that's part of the con- concern that some teams have with guys like DeMarcus, like they had with Hassan Whiteside and, and other guys going on down the line. But you're right about the Dennis Rodman comparison. Dennis Rodman was a nut job, and he was ten times worse than DeMarcus Cousins has ever been. But Dennis Rodman played in the 80s and, ni- uh, played in the 80s and 90s. He didn't play during the social media era where every little thing he does would have been amplified. You're absolutely right about that. And make no mistake, I'm not trying to criticize DeMarcus Cousins' skills, if you will. He's extremely talented. However, there's just so many red flags when it comes to his game. For instance, his effective field goal percentage this season is about 52%, right? It's not bad. It's not bad at all. Uh, for those of you who don't know, effective field goal percentage basically just uh, – it rewards three-point shooting, right? Three-point shooting is harder than a two-point shot. It's worth one extra point, so you get rewarded for shooting it. So it doesn't bring down your field goal percentage the way your normal uh, field goal percentage would, right? But back to my point, 52% effective field goal percentage is not bad. However, it would be so much better, right, had he not shoot so many threes. DeMarcus Cousins shoots 34% from three. He shoots six and a half threes a game. If DeMarcus Cousins, if his name wasn't DeMarcus Cousins, you wouldn't let an ordinary regular player shoot six to seven threes if they're only making 34% of them. Then when you combine that with the fact that DeMarcus turns the ball over five times a game, there are so many wasted offensive possessions 
when with a guy who has that high of a usage rate, right? And we know he's not a great defensive player. And one of the things that made DeMarcus Cousins great or the best thing about DeMarcus Cousins' game was his offensive rebounding. But now he shoots so many threes, his offensive rebounding has decreased. He doesn't get to the line as much as he has in years past. So my question basically is, are the, is this something that can be coached out of him, right? Or is he just kind of set in his ways in years, what is this, seven or eight for an NBA veteran at this point? I, I think he's kind of gotten set in his ways, and I think that's the problem when you have a guy who for so long – look, number one, let, let's start from ground zero. Right. He never should have signed an extension to stay in Sacramento. That, that, that was something that I, could, I couldn't believe that he didn't see – that just that relationship wasn't going to work. And uh, maybe he, we would be having a different conversation if he didn't sign that extension. He took a little bit less money and actually went to a place that could instill some discipline in him, the way a Miami Heat with Coach Spolcher would do, the way, you know, Pop and the Spurs would do, the way Dallas, he could go yeah. to a team. You know, not that he would ever go to Utah, but a team like Utah would have instilled discipline in him because they – you know, like, I think that's what he needed at that point, and he didn't get it. And I think, as a result, he's pushed the ball so far down the line. I don't know if you can – if you at this point in his career, I think certain guys are made that right. – they're made men, and I don't know how much you can change. Uh, but you're right. Like, as it, it, talented as he is, he's still not an efficient player. And as, as good as the numbers that you see of his t- point totals and everything else, they could be that much greater. And his rebound exactly. totals could be that much greater. I, hey, I go back to what they did when they came to D.C. last year and they played the Wizards and marching Gortat had to guard Cousins. And Gortat had, you know, was out on the perimeter defending him. Cousins, you know, he had this ridiculous stat line. You know, he had like 37 points. And, you know, he may have had 10 or 11 rebounds and all of this stuff. And I think Gortat only had, you know, 10 or 11 points. And I remember people saying, oh, Look at him. This is a real center. Look how he's showing Gortat. No, no. He got his numbers, but his team lost. Right. His team lost because it took him like 35, 36 points, shots, to get that 37, 38 points. Exactly. So, yeah, his numbers are better. If, if you're playing fantasy basketball, which I think is what people's – how they process things these days, yeah, DeMar- what DeMarcus did is great, but – it actually cost his team the game. It was a close game because he took higher percentage shots from better shooters in, 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 in key possession. So uh, there's a lot of truth to, to, to what you say. I, I agree 100%. He's a difficult guy to figure out. And yeah. talent-wise, skill-wise, I love him. But the way he plays the game, to me, sometimes leaves a lot to be desired. Once again, guys, I'm joined by my guy, Jay Michael. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at this is Jay Michael. NBA insider, but he's also an amazing boxing mind. So we're going to make the transition from the hardwood to the boxing ring. Uh, Spoke about this a little bit earlier in the show. Uh, Guillermo Rigondeaux is lost to Vasily Lomachenko. Uh, I don't know if controversial is the way to say it, but it was a bit disappointing. Uh, He didn't come out. And, you know, it was so funny because it happened on the same night, literally, an hour before Orlando Salido fought Miguel Roman. Uh, if you're a boxing head, you know about Salido. He puts on fight of the year fights all the time. But, you know, you saw him kind of take a knee and the ref stopped the fight, but there was no fight left in Salido. And I feel like that's different. 
You know, I'm never one to critique a fighter for not getting in, standing up, going out for another round because you know what? I I wouldn't do it. You know what I mean? They they're putting their lives and the quality of their lives on the line every single time they get up off that stool. But the thing that stood out about Rigo was it wasn't like he was getting hit flush. It wasn't like he was taking brutal shots. Again, easy for me to say. But him not getting up off the stool and continuing the fight, to me, seemed more like he knew in his mind that he had nothing for Lomachenko. And to me, that's like the ultimate sin. He didn't want to keep fighting because he had already mentally quit. Do you agree with that sentiment, or am I looking at it completely wrong? Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, um, you know, I, I just have to ask, you know, if I could ask Rigondeaux this question, like, um, if you were, and got an honest answer, and I don't think I probably would get an honest answer, but my question right. would be, if you were winning that fight, six to nothing, would you have said right. If you right. were winning, or if it were, you know, or, you know, or if you were winning the fight five to one or whatever, if you were winning with a, you know, and you were on your way to potential victory, would you? Would that have been enough to make you say, "I'm done"? Right. And if 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 if, if the answer is yes, then okay, you're really injured. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, look, I, I know from experience uh, in the ring. I know from experience and being around folks and been around the, the fight game uh, my entire, I mean, thirty years. Um, right. You uh, you can there's some guys who you know you can be beaten mentally. There's guys who have been winning fights, but they didn't know they were winning fights. They felt like they were losing fights. Who panicked and quit? Right. I've seen that happen plenty of times. It's a mental thing. And you're right. He wasn't getting he wasn't getting beat down. Where it's one of those fights where you say somebody's gonna, he's gonna end up going to the hospital. Right. Uh, it was he was I thought he was getting systematically beaten, and that he could not figure out how to get the job done. And yeah. he knew he knew it was potentially imminent. And I will say that it looked like he went to his corner and told them that he wanted to quit and he yeah. couldn't fight and they stopped the fight. I think in the heart of hearts, if you'd asked his corner, if they thought he could have continued fighting, they would probably say yes. Yeah. So, but again, it, 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 it is asking a lot for people to say, well, you should have kept fighting. I mean, you don't know what's going on in the guy's head. You don't know what kind of injury he has. Everybody has a different pain threshold. Right. Um, uh, every, you know, everybody can't fight like with a torn biceps like Miguel Cotto. I mean, but Larry, when Larry Holmes uh, beat Ken Norton for the vacant WBC title, one of the great heavyweight fights that never gets mentioned. It's in my top, it's in my top ten all time. Uh, but he beat Ken Norton despite tearing his biceps. Mm. And he fought 15 rounds. He came into the fight with a torn right bicep. But Larry Holmes, Larry Holmes was, a, was, a, was a different beast. I mean, um, Florentino Fernandez back in, uh, uh, I think he's a featherweight, he fought with a broken arm and finished Jeez. the fight. Um, there's guys, you know, that finished fights with, uh, uh, with broken jaws. I mean, Pernell Whitaker, think about Pernell Yeah, Whitaker. sweet Pete. Yeah. Uh, Pernell Whitaker passed his prime. Uh, just got out of drug rehab, fighting Felix Trinidad, who's at the height of his powers, getting beat like a drum, couldn't <laughs> tell something was wrong with his mouth. He couldn't open his mouth. He had a broken jaw. He finished that fight. Right. Not, but not, not everybody is that – everybody isn't tough in the same way. And that, the best thing I could tell you is, is that is 
yeah, I think I agree with you. I think Rigondeaux could have continued. I think um, he could have found a way. Uh, but if in his mind he couldn't continue, then he couldn't continue. But I think if he's winning that fight and he was feeling good about his place in the fight, um, I, I don't think that happened. And I think that's completely psychological more so than anything. And I thought, I thought he was going to lose the fight 12 rounds to zero uh, had he been able to finish it at all. Right. I'm not so sure he'd have been able to finish. I think he'd have probably been able to finish the fight because he's a good defensive guy who can try to kill the clock. But uh, he took, you know, he, he, he probably did take the easy way out. But, you know, it, it's kind of a catch-22 for me because I'm hesitant to tell somebody they should be able to tolerate what I think I can tolerate and vice versa. But at right. the same time, if you're a person who spent your Saturday – to stay in home, stay at home and watch that, or you spent your money to go see him fight, you have every right to be upset if you thought he he quit prematurely. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, there are not too many people who can break down the inside of a NBA locker room, give you you know analysis on one of the biggest NBA stars, and then turn around and break down boxing the way J. Michael just did. Man, he's one of my favorite guests, the perfect guest this week. Jay Michael, man, thank you so much for joining me this week on the Quarterly Report. Remember, make sure you check out his stuff. He's on Twitter. He's at this is Jay Michael. He's covered the NBA. Has covered the NFL in the past. Boxing, the whole nine. The guy knows his stuff. Jay Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the Quarterly Report. And I didn't even have to mention AC Slater being shown at the Chargers Skins game this uh, this past weekend. <laughs> Like I said, man, he don't want nothing no more. Don't gin him up. Nah, all kidding aside, Jay, thank you so much for joining me this week, and I look forward to your next appearance in the new year. Appreciate it. All right, Marmon, anytime. All right, so we are three quarters down with only one quarter left. We're going to go back to the hardwood as we finish up strong. It's our fourth topic this week. Fourth quarter. One of the biggest games of the season, really, or most anticipated games of the season happened um, on Wednesday, the 13th, when the Oklahoma City Thunder, um, featuring Paul George, came back to Indiana to take on the Pacers. And the Thunder won. But, you know, they had been struggling this season, and the Pacers had been playing much better than I think anyone really had anticipated. But while everyone was focusing on Paul George and Victor Oladipo, and even Kevin Pritchard got into the act by liking a... Um, a little snarky comic that the Thunder uh, tweeted out once the trade happened. I'm more fascinated by the other general manager, right? Sam Presti, because Sam Presti has been kind of looked upon, right? As this wonder child, right? The, the, the savvy GM who, who uh, I guess dismisses analytics, but, had maybe the greatest three-year stretch in terms of drafting that any that any general manager ever. And that's not me being hyperbolic. That's like real. He went Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, James Harden. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, come on. But you know, though that's something obviously because that's such a successful way to draft it, and that just never happens. That you can get two MVPs, and one guy who's finished second in the MVP, MVP voting two years. And if we were to give out MVPs now, I, I, my vote would be for James Harden. So you have three of the best five, six players in the league, and you drafted them back to back to back. 
Like when 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 they when they write the story on Sam Presti, that's that's the chunk of it, right? That's the first thing. That's the headline, the first bullet point. However, it is also important to realize that Sam Presti, while being a great overseer in terms of drafting, right? Whatever whatever type of scouting that they do in Oklahoma City, however they evaluate prospects. Obviously, it's second to none. But there are legitimate questions about how they evaluate players when they're in their building. Okay? Because right behind drafting Durant, Westbrook, Harden, back to back to back, it's also, he's the guy who traded James Harden for Kevin Martin and picks. Like, think about that. Like, we, we, we have to really remember this because I think, no matter how you break it down, it's, it, it's, if it's not the worst trade in NBA history, it's it top three, right? The last time, it, and people will will complain, and I guess rightly so, bring up James Harden's shortcomings when it comes to big-time playoff games, and that's fair. It's also important to realize the last time James Harden played for the Oklahoma City Thunder, it was the only time that team, that organization, was in the NBA Finals, Right? So maybe James Harden isn't the best player. Maybe he's not the anchor for a championship team. And look, I'm not I'm not a James Harden hater. There are a lot of people like that who don't like James Harden. And again, his playoff shortcomings, they're becoming a they're becoming consistent. He needs to, he needs to really have a great run this year. But the way the Thunder were utilizing him was perfect. Not to mention, right? Because there are a lot of people who always say, hey, well, you know, James Harden worked as the sixth man, but how long do you think that was going to last? Well, you are assuming a problem would have arose despite the fact that it was working, right? <laughs> You're assuming something, a problem would occur despite evidence to say when they were all together, they that was the best that organization had ever seen. Number two, it's also important to realize that the very next season, once they traded James Harden, Durant or Westbrook and then Durant dealt with injuries, okay? So maybe at some point, this hypothetical tension between those three guys would have continued. But for the next two plus years, those three guys were like, Durant and Westbrook weren't healthy. So Harden would have been able to take a, a larger role without worrying about the dynamics between those three guys, this hypothetical uh, tension, this hypothetical beef that would have happened that didn't actually happen. So the entire, and then, and here's the thing, James Harden, and people always overlook this, James Harden wanted to be Manu Ginobili. He had an E60 like two years ago, and he was like, I didn't want to be a starter. He wanted, he, he truly embraced the role of six man. Okay. Number two, James Harden didn't want a max. He wanted what? 16 million? And the Thunder, they were they didn't want to give him the extra four million dollars. Think about that. James Harden wanted 16 million dollars annually. And the Thunder said, no, we're gonna cap you out at 12. So when we look at the biggest, the big picture when it comes to Sam Presti. He traded James Harden over $4 million. 
What raise your hand if you wouldn't want your team to sign James Harden on a $16 million contract? Are you serious? Think about that. And when when we talk about Sam Presti, and again, I'm not trying to to say he's not a good GM because number one, you know, a lot of people are doing this revisionist history. Although I'm happy for Victor Oladipo, although I'm happy in and look, he plays for the Pacers. Y'all know I don't give a damn about the Pacers, right? There's a part of me that will never like the Pacers, but I'm happy for them. Oladipo, Sabonis, Turner, they've got a and I like Lance. They've got a nice little thing bubbling over in Indy, right? But I would have made that trade for Paul George because we also have to remember Russell Westbrook was entering his final year. They had to show Russ, look, man, we are committed to winning. Swing for the fences. And they got Paul George, who was one of the biggest stars of the NBA. Although the Pacers, as we sit here right now, seem to have gotten the better of that deal, that's a deal that everyone makes 10 times out of 10. So while I think it's fair to say, look, we killed Kevin Pritchard this offseason, we need to, you know, we need to rectify that. We need to really let him know that, yo, you made the right decision. It's also disingenuous to start complaining about Sam Presti for making that trade. So make no mistake, I'm not ripping Presti for trading for Paul George despite the fact that it seems that Indiana won that trade. Because that's the trade that you have to make. I am pointing out that he traded James Harden for Kevin Martin and picks. Right? I am making a point to point out that he traded Carme- traded for Carmelo Anthony. And if you watched any Nick game over the last few years, you knew that Carmelo Anthony was, he's not the same. Like, Carmelo was overrated when he was in Denver. And then there were a few years where he was a little bit underrated because he had this perception that like that carried around him. Melo wasn't nearly as bad as the player as some of his critics made him out to be. But if you watched Nick games the last three years, you saw that his explosiveness was dwindling. Um, there were legitimate issues about his committed, how committed he was. Um, not to winning, because I'll never question a player's desire to win, but committed to doing the small things, okay? Leadership. And how much did Melo think that shooting was the way he had to be effective? Like, there was never this improvement of his game. You know what I mean? And it's unfair to Melo, because he'll always be compared to Dwayne Wade and LeBron James. That's just the way it is. It's unfair to him in that regard. But it's benefited him for the vast majority of his professional career because he was looked upon as being the superstar talent because he scored points like LeBron, although he didn't do anything else like LeBron, right? Being friendly and being around and being kind of looked upon as being a LeBron contemporary, it, it increased his pockets, right? So now the fact that you're being compared to LeBron negatively, you got to take the good with the bad, right? And Sam Presti, Thought it was smart to trade for Melo. So while I understand training for Paul George, he had to know that Westbrook, Paul George, and Melo, that, that doesn't seem like a, a, a good fit. But he made the trade anyway and traded a, a good player in the process, in his cancer. So while the Thunder won the game, 
And while many will will look at Kevin Pritchard and, you know, rightfully so, say, you know what, we were wrong for ripping you this offseason. You, you knew what you were doing. While many people will look at Paul George and question his leadership and how good of a player he really is, and while many people will look at Oladipo and say, wow, we were really wrong about him, let's not forget the other party in this blockbuster trade that happened months ago. Because Sam Presti, again, rightfully so, will be remembered as the guy who went Durant, Westbrook, Harden. I mean, that is Grand Slam, Grand Slam, well, Grand Slam, home run, home run, back to back to back, right? He's also the guy who traded James Harden. He's also the guy who traded for Kendrick Perkins and gave him a crazy contract. He's also the guy who, who hired Billy Donovan. And he's also the guy who traded for Carmelo Anthony. At some point, it can't just be praise that we heap on Sam Presti. At some point, we're going to have to start looking at him, taking the good and the bad, and seeing where we balance things off. Because there may not ever be a, a, a run, a three-year run of drafting that we've seen, that we will see, that we saw from Presti and the Thunder. But there may never be a time where... Uh, MVP, a top five player, top five, top six player is traded for role players and picks. That may not ever happen either. There may not ever be a time where, I mean, he did trade Oladipo and Oladipo will be an all-star, right? And Paul George, again, I understand why you make the trade. Paul George's not going to be an all-star this year. And Paul George probably isn't playing in Oklahoma City next season. You know, so we got to weigh it all. It can't just be the good and it can't just be the bad. Take everything and evaluate it and see where we stand. Because you know what? Sam Presti has gotten a long way, as he should, on those three drafts. But now with only one of those players still playing and the Thunder's losses starting to add up, it may be time that we start reevaluating how we remember and how we view the wonder child, Sam Presti. All right, guys, man. Thank you so much for listening to the show again. I was gone last week. It was good. Good to be back in front of this mic talking to you all. Remember, there's so many ways you can get involved with me, the show, the whole the whole nine yards, the whole movement that I'm trying to do. You can email me. Email the show at quarterly report. That's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E report. You can also tweet the show. We're at Quarterly Show on Twitter. Again, that's Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E Show. Also, we're on iTunes. So subscribe to the show. Subscribe to the podcast. All you have to do is go to iTunes. Go to the podcast directory and type Quarterly Report. You'll see the show's icon. Click on it. Subscribe. And while you're at it, if you don't mind, please rate and review the show. Thank you to all of those of you who have subscribed and do listen. But if you don't mind, go ahead and rate and review the show. Let the world know. Let me know your thoughts on the show, what you like, and maybe what you don't like about it as well. And finally, we are on Instagram as well. Head on over to Instagram. It's Quarterly Report We're on Instagram. And I'm doing, I'm continuing, I should say, this piece on the wire and NBA players who are most like 
our favorite characters from the best show of all time. I call it my Wire NBA mix. We've done probably about 11 so far. Check them out. Let me know if you like them. They're really fun. They're even more fun to do. I'm glad that you all have appreciated them and enjoyed them thus far, but we got plenty more characters, plenty more players to go. So head on over to Instagram. I'm at Quarterly Report. Check out the Wire NBA mix, as well as snippets from all of your favorite guests from each week's show. All right, guys, that's my time this week. Again, thank you so much for listening to the show. It was good to be back after a week off, but we're going to finish up the 2017 year strong. I'm back for the rest of the year each week, every Thursday, right here on the Quarterly Report.